if you're trying to help players, you need to keep it as simple as possible for them. They've got enough going on in terms of like the technical cues they get in terms of tactics and formations and what they need to do. Certainly when it comes to rehab and gym-based work, I like to keep it as simple as possible for them so that the work that they need to do gets done because the best exercise is the exercise that gets done. Welcome to Footy Fellas, coming at you from Chicago and Minnesota. We're going to be talking soccer, talking life, playing games, playing mind games. we got a little something for you. If you haven't yet, throw us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Footy Fellas Pod, F-O-O-T-Y Fellas Pod. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel, which we're growing at Footy Fellas Pod. Last week, we spoke about some of our, the fellas, experiences with nutrition and fitness, playing soccer in high school and college. And today, we have a very cool interview for you with Tom Shaw, a sports therapist and physiotherapist for Forest Green Rovers Football Club in England. He set the record straight and told us everything we wanted to know, but didn't know before, which was a lot, to be fair. He talked about his role as a therapist and physiotherapist at the club, what nutrition is like at an all-vegan club in Forest Green Rovers, his philosophy on training and rehab, whether young players are doing enough to take care of their bodies, which Icy was talking about last week, and the Ronaldo effect, which I'll leave a little more ominous so you're on the edge of edge of your seat like we were during the interview and like we currently are just thinking about nutrition and fitness these last couple weeks. Uh, am I right? All right, don't both jump at once. <laughs> Absolutely, Eli. You know, not only are we getting older we're also getting weaker in our elder state and so we have to focus a lot of time and energy on our nutrition and fitness to be able to even play in men's league games nowadays so it was a good healthy reminder from tom to keep that all in check and keep persisting in in our athletic adventures athletic pursuits which we are doing on the daily just getting out of bed walking to the kitchen trying to cook something and feeling a tweak in my back is an athletic pursuit these days jones um you know i i I really enjoyed um hearing someone just talk about the job and how while uh they you know rovers have such a known stance on veganism it doesn't really affect too much of the day-to-day workings. It's not like some complete shambles of a um, organization that, you know, because they've changed the diet, suddenly everything falls apart. Um, And it's reassuring and reaffirming to hear that you can make these more sustainable choices and still have a very competitive and professional um, environment. So hopefully, hopefully as other massive organizations are listening to this podcast, they too will start to, um, glean um, some of the insights, valuable insights coming out of the Rovas. You kind of agreed with you too, I see. I think as we got closer to the end, talking about younger players, nutrition, fitness, and giving some advice, which which I'll leave to the expert. But he seemed to agree with you 
icy that people aren't necessarily doing enough, but there might be more information these days. Is that the sense you were getting to what yep. younger players should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. He pointed to all the, the resources available nowadays for athletes of all ages, really, but you know, especially for, for young athletes who maybe aren't getting the information they are looking for in their day-to-day contacts or maybe their coaches for their teams. So yeah, that was, a, that was a good bit of information, I think, for all young listeners and all listeners really in general. But yeah, you know, he did, he did mention that younger athletes, perhaps because of, and he did mention a little bit of a spoiler alert, workload, right, being an issue, uh, or not being an issue, but being something that younger players aren't dealing with as much as, as maybe older players deal with. And so because it's lower workload, you don't have to focus as much time and energy on nutrition and fitness and whatnot. So uh, I'll stop talking and let, let Tom get into it. But yeah. Absolutely, Eli. Do either of you watch YouTube videos? Do you have some other go-to? What's your online resource, would you say, for nutrition and fitness? Um, you definitely think when it comes to most information, generally it's social media, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of it comes down to what stories might pop up on Twitter or um, Instagram for that most part. And, and it's usually if I'm following a person, a sport athlete, and they're um, you know, showing what they're eating or, um, you know, usually it's by proc it's, it's, it's their proximity to something. So if they're, you know, hold it's, it's just branding, but like if they're holding something or they're eating something and they have their chiseled body next to it, I'm like, Oh, well, obviously pistachios lead to an eight pack. So that's what, um, probably is my biggest influence other other than so you're just a victim to advertising uh 100 yeah, i am a capitalist <laughs> consumer um easily swayed shall i say but but seriously uh i feel like health health uh, another spin to this is just that food media is really popular now that is posting photos and um it, I think the majority of it is just what looks most aesthetically pleasing. But the the next level to that is, well, is it actually like um, edible? Does it is it something that actually makes you want to eat it? And um, by and large, people are starting to put more and more food out there that isn't just a nice juicy steak um, that has some nice um, you know plant based options. And um, the ubiquity of seeing other options out there. Um, allows you more access to that possibility in the future. Mm. Um, so that's my, my own take. I will, I will put a real quick note in this that uh, Tom is not a nutritionist. So while we've spent a lot of time talking about food and nutrition and physical health, um, I will caveat once again, he does not, he is not a nutritionist. He has a good idea of how food helps, but what he really helps with too is especially how to recover and take care of yourself physically. Icy doesn't need any of that help. He's in tip-top shape. He's been alpine oh. skiing all summer. No, definitely have not been, unfortunately. The lack of snow in Minnesota is disheartening, to say the least. <laughs> let's yeah, yeah, let's go to a little, a little game. Uh, Jones and I have been talking a lot about expected goals, which, if you don't know, in soccer is a mathematical formula based on a specific chance where you take a shot from this spot on the field. How likely are you to score given a number of factors and a number gets assigned to that. And at the end of the game, you see how many goals you were likely to score versus how many goals you actually scored. It could be more 
could be less, but it's been really fascinating lately looking at the final scores of games, of soccer games specifically, and seeing what the expected goals look like versus the final result. We'll probably get into that a lot more in a future pod and bring on an expert to, to talk us through that because it seems really interesting. What I want to quickly direct at both of you is what is your expected injuries per year? And do you think your expected injuries, given your activities, given your slips, your throws, your movements, is that more or less than what you'd expect? So Icy, I'll start with you quickly. This is before we get into Tom, but just cue it up. You know, cue it up. I want to hear from both of you. Do you think you've been unlucky or lucky? Icy, have you had more or less actual injuries than you'd expect in the past few years? Or, or throughout uh, the course of your life. Are we talking career, like soccer? No, career? just talking day to day life. life. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> life injuries. Uh, I would have to say I've generally been fortunate to not have major injuries. I'll knock on wood. Um, yeah, you know, my knees have been, knock on wood again, have been fine uh, for all my soccer playing. So that's awesome. My ankles actually have gotten a lot worse, a lot weaker. So. I don't like that at all. And, you know, in games, I'll, I'll twist it very, you know, pretty often, which bothers me a lot. And it's actually, I've finally experienced a lot of swelling in it when I, when I twist it pretty badly. So, uh, so far I've been fortunate. I think my, uh, fortunate, uh, run in my life is slowly coming to an end. So, uh, <laughs> I hope it's not going to be devastating, but I'm getting injured more and more. This is meant to be just a really sad, reflective segment, Ed Jones. <laughs> I um I do want us to to spend in the same way that we calculated what the impact of what a fan base has on a <laughs> yeah you I, want to put a formula together. I, I think for we need to put a, injury. A, yeah, hundred percent. Not not in this not in this pod, but <clears throat> I think it's important um, because I think we need to establish what constitutes a full injury. You know, is that uh, is it an amount of weeks that that you could not do something because of it, or you know, is it just an ailment on the body? We'll, we'll figure that out. I would say though, the past few years, um, it's similar to what Icy's saying in that it's probably how how often I have been in situations where I could have been injured, but I have not been or have been. And uh, the only thing I can really think of, I don't live a very adventurous life. I'm not on the edge of cliffs or anything like that. It's just I'm thinking men's league. I've played a lot of men's league over the past couple of years, and. I know we show up early to those games and we're stretching and taking care of ourselves so that we don't get injured. And all of that said, I think expected injury per year, I would say is maybe for the amount of games that we play, I would say, I don't know, again, what constitutes injury. I would say maybe it's like 1.6 for an entire year. I would say, though, we really average <clears throat> maybe 0.5. I think it's very minimal. And if it is, it's a light little thing nothing actually severe. Um, so I'm going to say we're, we're performing well under the expected injury per year. So my, we've my been lucky. Question. We've been lucky. And I'm speaking. We, yes, I'm, I, I, I don't know if you have a different perspective, but I'm, I'm just, I'm bucking us and bucketing us in the same realm. I didn't know when you said we, I didn't know if you meant you and Liverpool last season winning the title, Woof. or if you're talking about me and you's injury history. Woof. Woof. We should have brought up Liverpool to Tom. Something tells <laughs> us he's a big Liverpool guy. It's true. That's true. Anyway, sorry for that shot, Icy, but that was bringing it back to <laughs> expected goals. Um, but we should get into that that formula at some point because that would be a fun one. And without further ado, we're going to start this fun interview. So you can hear more from Tom, who we learned a lot from and has some great knowledgeable bits and cool insights about 
life behind the scenes as a physiotherapist at Forest Green Rovers. Enjoy. We are happy to have Tom Shaw with us for today's episode. Tom works as a sports therapist slash physiotherapist for the Forest Green Rovers Football Club in England, while also attending Sheffield Hallam University to earn his Bachelor of Science degree in physiotherapy. In addition, Tom is the head CrossFit coach at Bard Lindney Gym and has been for the past four years. As a League Two English football team, the Rovers made international headlines becoming the world's first vegan and carbon neutral soccer club a few years ago. Today, Tom will share his perspective, thoughts, and philosophy around fitness and nutrition on professional athletes. Welcome to the pod, Tom. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to it. Tom, uh, I think the first question we have to ask on the bat, as uh, Rovers are kind of taking the headlines here, do you have to be a vegan to work at Forest Green? <laughs> this is a question that gets asked uh, probably the most, um, probably a little bit more than how the result was on a Saturday sometime. Um, the answer is is no, but anything um, that's supplied by Forest Green for kind of the players or the staff, kind of anything at the training ground or anything at the, the football club is vegan. Yeah, but away from the club, um, yeah, no, the players don't have to be vegan. Has being introduced to to a steady stream of of vegan and non animal based food opened your mind to to some new to some new tasty tasty foods i think so yeah we're, we're quite fortunate in that the chef at the grand's really good um she, she's really really good so the quality of the food we get at forest green is probably up there in terms of quality for for anywhere you'll go in the league um although it's slightly different in terms of it being vegan the actual quality she produces is really good so i kind of applaud it to her for that but it certainly does get you thinking about the alternatives that that are available um i know a couple of couple of the players over the years have actually turned vegan off off the bat of kind of being introduced to it at Forest Green, which is which is I guess what the what the ethos of the club is is about really. That's that's awesome. I don't know if you have Trader Joe's there. I don't believe so, but Tesco's co-op, same idea. Eating a vegan diet here I think would be a bit expensive. So I don't I don't know if it's a draw for players, but it seems pretty exciting that there's uh, vegan options prepared by the club and top quality, top class food like you just mentioned from the chef. It seems pretty uh pretty appealing for any any new signings new players coming in yeah it's certainly a kind of contemporary thought at the minute isn't it and from the from speaking to their kind of players in the first team um it doesn't seem to put it certainly doesn't seem to put anybody off from signing for us for that reason um so yeah i think overall it's been accepted pretty well by the players on the staff i think we could obviously spend the the next i don't know 40 to three days uh 40 minutes to three days just you know bantering about uh vegan but we're gonna move on and, and, and talk about who you are a little bit more too um can you explain for the novices which includes me i will raise my hand and say it um what a sports team therapist and physiotherapist does uh, what really falls within your domain and conversely what uh are what is a misconception about this job or what people may think you do but you actually don't it kind of falls into to two camps really um i started at forest green within the academy so the kind of under nines to the under 18s and there as a sports therapist my kind of it was more of an umbrella term really i had to get stuck into a lot a lot more things outside of that sports therapy bracket in terms of sometimes i'd have to join in and training um to make up the numbers because there isn't as many players in the squad and if you get a few injuries 
what we needed the numbers for training or um, sometimes um, I'd be the conditioning coach um, alongside being a sports therapist looking after the injured players. Um, sometimes I'd have to work um, work in the kit room and help prepare the kit for the boys on a Saturday. So in the academy, you kind of had to have a lot of plates spinning at one time um, because of the provision. There weren't as many staff members and there's obviously a lot more players from the under nine age group under the straight through to the under 18s. There's a lot more people to consider as well as more staff members, as well as um, players and parents. Um, so with that regard, it, it's it's more intense in terms of having a lot to think about. But now I'm in mean, with the first team environment, it's the provisions a little bit more. And obviously the squad's only, there's only 20 or so players and the amount of staff is less. So we're able to focus a little bit more on the medical provision for the boys, um, injury management and diagnosis and that kind of thing. So in terms of my role within the first team, which is kind of what I think you guys have um, asked me to speak about the most, is is that we're, we're there mainly for kind of if anything goes wrong really with the players, any kind of musculoskeletal problems, um, any training fatigue, uh, any load monitoring, that kind of falls into, the load monitoring stuff does kind of fall into the sports science department, but we will have kind of regular MDT meetings and and discussions on who's done what and you know if a couple of the older players might need their minutes managed or they might need to train a little bit infrequently for, for a particular week then those are the discussions that we kind of have um, but yeah the, the majority of the time we, we focus on injury diagnosis prognosis um, rehab planning and then any trauma situations so we're there to particularly on a match day when the kind of the whistle blows if anything trauma related happens on the pitch kind of a uh, dislocation a break loss of consciousness that kind of thing where trauma trains to be able to help the paramedic and the doctor manage kind of those more um, serious situations if you like any misconceptions I guess um, uh, hard to say really um, sometimes you consider kind of the font of all knowledge in terms of um, medical issues and that's come to the the forefront at the moment with the COVID kind of situation that we've got going on at the minute and you're, you're kind of the go-to guy to answer any questions that are slightly um, more medical than others and and I know by far from an expert in, in the COVID-19 kind of scenario so um, having those answers to some of the more medically challenging questions can be can be quite difficult sometimes. So you're required to have such a wide range of knowledge to be able to do this job effectively it sounds like anywhere from the more you know quote unquote basic or normal injuries to trauma serious injuries and now even shifting into some some covid questions which is new to all of us um, your role is really anything across the the medical spectrum for the club yeah certainly and and the kind of differences between being a sports therapist and a training physiotherapist is that, like you said, a sports therapist um, is predominantly around kind of MSK injuries. And then whereas a physiotherapist will look at kind of MSK, cardiovascular problems and, and neurological problems as well. So you're kind of a little bit more well-rounded as, as a physio. Um, because obviously footballers can have kind of um, CBR problems as well as MSK issues that they need to overcome. So... Physiotherapy is, is a little bit more um, popular within the football kind of scenario um, in terms of professional football. Sports therapy is, is getting there and the reputation of sports therapy is certainly 
um, increasing over the years and rightly so. But in terms of kind of football provision, the physiotherapist kind of has, has a little bit more um, scope to cover wider, wider areas of the rehab for the body, I guess. I'm just genuinely curious, uh, you know, you're saying this is more well-known. Is that a popular route? I'm curious, both from your perspective, how you got into it and got interested, and then also for studying it and people going to school and becoming trained, especially in London, is the route always through through soccer, through football, that people that people want to become, uh, you know, physio at these clubs, and that's what they're working towards? Or what does the trajectory look like in that space? And is it is it really well known and sought after? I'd, I'd say no, actually. In terms of the, the physiotherapy course I'm currently kind of halfway through at the moment is that it's, it's very much um, weighted towards working for the NHS. Um, and kind of as we progress through the course, um, more and more people become aware of potentially working in the kind of elite environments in terms of football, rugby, cricket, boxing, those, those kind of sports, and that there is a there is a pathway there in terms of working into sport. But I'd say... Majority of the people that I've come into contact with in terms of physiotherapy would initially either want to work, and I'm broadly speaking here, um, but they would initially want to work in the NHS or in kind of private healthcare clinics. And then they kind of stumble upon the the sports side of things kind of after that. Obviously, you do get, you know, some students that uh, have an ambition to work in sport. And and that was me when I initially did my um, sports therapy kind of postgraduate qualification is that that was my aim to become qualified and then go straight into working into a, an elite environment. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, really. Um, so if you'd have asked me about my sports therapy cohort, that was that was probably 70 percent of that cohort wanted to work in elite sport, regardless of the sport. Um, whereas my physiotherapy cohort is probably... 90% of, of the students would want to stay in the NHS and then obviously around 10% into kind of elite sport if possible. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no no idea there. So that's really insightful. Yeah, I think because it, it's quite a competitive market to get into elite sport, it puts a lot of people off um, because you have to give a lot of your time initially volunteering usually to get kind of get your foot in, in the door at a professional club. And then there's not always a job for you at the end. And it is quite, it is quite difficult to, to kind of get a, a career going within elite sport. You really do have to work for it. Whereas kind of the NHS routes, they're a little bit more accessible to kind of getting that first job in, in kind of healthcare. So I think it, it's, it's quite daunting stepping into elite sport in terms of the pressures and that kind of thing. So I think it does put a little bit, uh, does put people off a little bit. So Tom, you know, there's a lot of talk in the sports world. I feel like it gets a lot of press when athletes come out and say, I've gone plant-based or they use, you know, they say vegan. And I know some athletes don't like to use that word, especially Novak Djokovic, tennis player. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he specifically calls his diet plant-based, doesn't like the, the label as vegan. But despite that, after, after changing or transitioning his diet and nutrition to this plant-based um, style. He, he's noted that his respiratory and inflammation concerns have gone away or just become inconsequential for his tennis matches and, and whatnot. So from a, a, rec- a recovery perspective, in, in your from your perspective, are players getting back into health faster on this more plant-based diet versus animal-based from um, what you've seen? It's hard to say because there's only a, a 
two or three players over the time I've been at the club that are 100% plant-based 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I can't account for what the, the players eat away from the club, because obviously they don't have to be vegan away from, from the club. It's only kind of one meal a day or two meals a day, potentially, mm-hmm. um, that they have plant-based from the club. Um, so it's hard to give a definitive answer to there because at the minute, the, the, the players are probably, you know, not plant-based at 100% of the time. Right, right. Um, and I'm by no means a qualified nutritionist either. But um, mm-hmm. So it's hard to say in that sense. I wouldn't want to give you kind of a, a false answer, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's totally fair. And I guess even with the, we could argue that the trans, you know, these players have arguably moved more to a plant-based diet than they would have at another club. If, even if it is one or two meals a day, unless they're eating, you know, eight meals a day after, <laughs> after they go home at night. Is it the consensus that maybe players have, um, that recovery time has improved at all? I think it certainly opened up the players' eyes into um, differences in, in how they can feed themselves. Um, mm-hmm. With that being said, that they, the boys regularly speak about how the diets have improved in terms of um, healthy eating and a balanced diet and that that kind of thing. So maybe not purely just being plant-based, but a mixture of both has definitely helped them realize that, you know, you know a, nutrition, a, a proper nutrition strategy is key and in terms of hydration at the right times and um, some supplementation at the right times. And it's certainly more of a, a hot topic within the group that you know nutrition is is something that they need to take on board especially with some of the players that potentially come from the non-league setup where things are a little bit um shall we say less professional at times or or not always full-time athletes um they get a bit more of an education on what to eat when to eat kind of how to eat rather than just you know what they've always become accustomed to from kind of when they were when they were young a, that's a nice diplomatic answer, Tom. We appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now you, you know, very sit in a very um, unique position for for us, advantageous in that you had spent some time, yes, with uh, the youth squad, and, and now have recently transitioned into the first team. In your opinion, do young players spend enough time on health and nutrition, or is this something they only come to appreciate later in their career? Um, good question. I think it's certainly something. In terms of the health bracket of that that question, I've noticed the players that take into account their health requirements in terms of um, strength training, nutrition strategies, um, recovery protocols, that kind of thing, tend to have a longer career, broadly speaking, injuries aside, in terms of contact injuries aside. Um, the players that take more interest in that sometimes can stay within the sport for longer. In terms of kind of our teenage athletes, um, from kind of 14 to 18, a lot of the boys don't have, again, broadly speaking, the um, load in terms of multiple injuries that kind of can impact the body. So I think they do take it for granted, some of them. And then as players' careers progress into kind of early to mid-20s, game load increases, um, the amount of games they play increases under high intensity and, and kind of injuries do then start to, to creep in. And I think that's when, certainly from my experience, the players do then start to seek um, health strategies off their own back rather than kind, kind of relying on 
sports scientists or SNC coaches or physiotherapists, sports therapists to kind of push them to do it. They kind of take a little bit more ownership on themselves is what I've seen over the past couple of years. But we tend to see the younger athletes are a little bit more fresh and haven't played quite as many games. Um, maybe take it for granted a little bit more than kind of the experienced professional. It's interesting. We were we were chatting as a group on our pod last week and all last week and also about this topic and talking about our own experiences. We played Division Three college soccer, so we're not making it to the level of playing on Forest Green Rovers, obviously. But just talking about our own experiences with nutrition and fitness and the information and knowledge we were given in high school and college or at the, the club soccer level, if we we're playing on club soccer teams and how it differed. And our, I think our train of thought was similar to that, that we weren't given all the right information when we were between the ages of 14, 18, still in high school here in America. And it was really just the don't drink soda, don't eat this junk food, don't do this. But it wasn't more specific information about, hey, here's exactly how you should be training. Here's how you train each of these muscle groups. Here's how what you should be eating and when and why it's important. And I see, I know you were providing good examples also of how professional athletes these days put so much more time and so much more money into this that it's become, it seems like it's become more publicly known or it seems to be more thought of these days than the older days. And I'm curious, I see if you want to jump in there with some of those examples and then to get Tom's thoughts on just like how perception of, of nutrition and fitness has changed or even your own experiences growing up, Tom, obviously you're closer to this because you've studied it and you've thought about this. No, I completely agree. But I think in within the last kind of five to 10 years, um, the kind of Ronaldo effect has, has really helped. The fact that he's um, so good at football in terms of that elite international level. And he clearly works hard away from the club and away from kind of the rest of the squad on maintaining strength, maintaining performances and, and working on kind of his, his his physique. I think that's really had an effect on certainly some of the younger generation that, that are coming through at the moment. Whereas if you go back to kind of the 90s per se, there was still potentially in England that culture of, of um, maybe drinking alcohol after games and, and not worrying about their diets for the majority part of the week as long as they ate well on a Thursday, Friday and didn't go out past kind of a Wednesday night, they would be fine for a Saturday. Whereas I think the modern day athlete now kind of thinks about that a lot more in terms of when they decide to kind of ease off a little bit and when to be really on point with what they're eating and what they're doing in the gym. Um, but yeah, I'm certainly in the same same boat as, as you guys haven't played a little bit when I was younger. The information that players are kind of available to now is, is certainly um, improving and it's one of those hindsight things that you wish you'd had that information kind of 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love that you I love that you referred to it as the Ronaldo effect because I think here in the States, and maybe this is just myself, uh, I like basketball in the NBA and you know LeBron James is just the, he's just the representation of the NBA in my mind, he's kind of just at the forefront of everything. He's just an elite, a world elite athlete. I also feel like, you know, your LeBrons and your Ronaldos of the world sort of compete against each other and they, in a way, and they, you know, try to be the most successful athlete. But they also, I think, uh, um, look to what each other are doing and how they're being so successful and kind of uh, not steal, but, you know, use the techniques that each other are doing and, and what, why I say that is because so LeBron it's become 
you know, a talking point that he spends $1.5 million of his own money every year on his body, which I'm sure Ronaldo spends an obscene amount of money as well. But for these guys and their age, it's so important, right? Because they're at the end of their, you know, they're approaching the end of their careers, but they're still dominating against all these younger athletes. And it's really impressive to see. Um, so just wanted to uh, little tangent into what we were talking about and some of the numbers from our discussion in the last episode. But wanted to, to go back to, has your philosophy, Tom, towards training and recovery changed over time? In terms of training, um, away from the pitch, obviously I'm not a technical coach, so I don't have much say on kind of what they do in their technical sessions in terms of things like passing drills or shooting drills or 11 v 11 training games, that kind of thing. That's a little bit out of my scope at the minute. Um, so I don't really have any impact on that per se. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of what the boys do in terms of recovery sessions, um, prehabilitation, S&C sessions, I, I am um, obviously not the, S the main S&C coach at Forest Green, but we do have regular kind of MDT meetings between kind of the medical staff, the sports scientists, nutrition guy um, and the S&C coaches so in terms of my personal philosophy having a bit of a kind of CrossFit background away from football is that if you're trying to help players you need to keep it as simple as possible for them mm -hmm. they've got enough kind of going on in terms of like the technical cues they get in terms of tactics and formations and what they need to do in certain pitch-based scenarios um, and that can be quite cognitively bearing for, for some of the players. Some players handle a lot of information easier than others. Um, but certainly when it comes to rehab and gym-based work, I like to keep it as simple as possible for them so that the work that they need to do gets done because the best exercise is the best is the exercise that gets done. So if you overcomplicate things for them, they've had a tough day on the pitch and you know the training session might not have been as good as they'd expected and they're a little bit mentally fatigued. All of a sudden, if you if you throw in uh, numerous highly technical um, multi-joint movements at them that require a high level of concentration and um, that kind of thing, it, it can be really overbearing for some players. Not all players, but some players. So I like to keep it as simple as possible for them to start with. And once they're competent, and once they're safe, then we can move on to some more kind of technically demanding things, depending on how their day's been. And another thing that's kind of developed over the years is is keep the programming simple to try and keep them strong. So at the moment, we've got two games a week quite regularly because of the build-up from, from the kind of the lockdown scenario that we've had. So the boys are playing a lot of football more regularly than a normal season. So to keep them strong and robust and on the pitch is is one of the kind of fundamental themes of this season. So if they're not able to get in the gym and under some, under some load, then we're going to be kind of chasing our tail in terms of injury management and, and fatigue for the players. So keep it sim simple and keep them strong is kind of my mm -hmm. training philosophy. Do you ever have players wandering into your CrossFit gym outside of the club and then you can really show them what, uh, what CrossFit looks like, not keep it as simple? Yeah, sometimes they come in. Sometimes, um, but where my where I coach at CrossFit, the CrossFit stuff is is quite a distance from um, where we where the most of the players are based. Um, so only get the odd one or two in um, if we need to do some kind of late stage rehab stuff. We might 
might introduce them to kind of a snippet of what a CrossFit class may look like. Um, but yeah, not not all the time because obviously it's quite strenuous and they need to be able to recover again for performance on a Saturday. So it doesn't really happen, to be honest. Especially if they go and they're getting outworked by, you know, <laughs> local guy going to the bar the night before it comes to CrossFit. It's him and the him and the player and they're just getting outworked in class. That's a tough one to uh, to recover from. Yeah, that wouldn't be great for the ego, I guess. <laughs> So you you're, you were just speaking about how um, you kind of take a view to training as as almost being reactionary to what is going on in, in games or recent games or even uh, the the training prior. Um, to what extent do you know what the training is going to be beforehand, um, and do you feel like you have to be more reactionary, or um, that is quote unquote reactionary is is not really a thing so much as just perhaps literally what your job is to be it's to react to how um, players are doing and feeling yeah so with my kind of academy um, kind of SNC coach as well as a medical head-on um, we would always plan for the season in terms of when we wanted to do certain sessions at certain times throughout the year so sessions in pre-season would look dramatically different to sessions in around the Christmas period when fixtures pile up and that kind of thing um, so in my mind, it's always good to have that kind of season-long loan, that season-long kind of planning of, of what the players are going to do when and roughly what that's going to look like. But there's always, for me, a reactive element in terms of physiotherapy now in that you, you're basically there waiting for something to go wrong with a player for you to then help them fix it, if that makes sense, um, for the majority of the time. Whereas our, our prehabilitation work um, that's usually a lot more planned in terms of um, in, in pre-season we'll work on screening the players especially if we've got some new players into the squad we'll go through a kind of a battery of tests or a battery of assessments that are there to either highlight strengths weaknesses or we call them work-ons at Forest Green so something that they can do for a substantial period of time to either help improve performance or to um, negate any kind of overuse injuries and that kind of thing um, so although, yes, there is a reactive element to what we do in terms of if somebody takes a tackle in training or somebody gets a little bit fatigued or training goes on for a little bit longer than planned, we might dial down what we ask them to do post-training. But there's always that underpinning planning of of kind of weeks one to the final game of the season. Got it. Almost going back to at the very beginning, talking about misconceptions and how people put an onus on you as the everything doctor. Um, and you treat everything, um, be it the, the, the physical ailments of the player, but also, um, you know, their health or, uh, with regards to COVID, um, or, and this is where I'm, I'm leading us to, uh, how do you work on the mental side of injuries with players? And I totally respect that you are not a sports psychologist whatsoever, uh, but dealing with injuries is a well-known impact on players' uh, own confidence and willingness to get back on, on in the field. What experiences have you had or do you think your role plays in helping with the mental side of injuries? At Forest Green, I'm really lucky in the first team to work with two really great other uh, medical practitioners in Ian Weston and Joe Baker. Um, so there's three of us within the, in the department and, and Ian Weston kind of oversees all of um, medical sports science um, analysis, that kind of thing. He's the go-to man, but he's from a medical background previously. So 
if you've got a player who's kind of long term um, going to be away from the game, as you said, that can be really mentally taxing for them. But because there's three of us within the department, it's it's refreshing for the players to not always see the same face or hear the same voice every day in terms of your one-to-one rehabilitation. So as, as a group, we'll, we will kind of plan and implement what the player needs to do on certain days or at certain times throughout their recovery. But that might be a different practitioner taking different sessions just to try and keep it as fresh for the for the players as possible. Because kind of in our view, if, if you're always seeing the same person for hours and hours a day and whilst everybody else is training and playing games and hopefully results are going well and there's a really high morale within the camp, if you're that player that's injured for X amount of time, it can be really tough. And, and being with the same person all day, every day, you know, sometime for months on end can be quite um, taxing for both parties, really. So we do like to change the kind of practitioner that does the sessions just to try and keep things as fresh as possible. Um, so, yeah, we're quite quite blessed in, in terms of being able to do that because there's other clubs with it at the League 2, maybe even League 1 level, that may only have one um, medical professional. So we're, we're really lucky in that sense. That's That's nice. And I'm sure you know, for you as well to learn from these guys, uh, is, is, is really awesome. I, I ran across Joe Baker as well, your, your coworker. And, you know, he's been there for, for about five years, going on six years. So yeah, I'm sure he, he's very familiar with the club and, and yeah, you know, he's actually my mentor at the moment because I've oh, nice. another degree. So, um, yeah, I've got a lot to thank him for. Um, and then obviously he worked under Ian at a previous club and they come over together. Um, to work for Forest Green just before I started, about four years before. This is my fourth season with the club now, so they were there the season before that. So, Joel awesome. kind of mentored a little bit by Ian, and then obviously I'm being mentored by by Joel, so it's, it's, it's quite nice. That's great. Now, Tom, a large portion of our audience is tends to be high school players, um, 14, 18 years old. And we wanted to know what fitness advice would you have for them to be able to succeed as a player, stay healthy? What are, what are some things that you wish you had known at that, at that age? That all the information is there for them to find. So if you're interested in kind of what you need to do away from your, your, your sessions in terms of with, with, your, with your coach, that all the information is there to find. And, and usually finding the right people at the moment is, is a little bit easier because of things like LinkedIn, because of things like Twitter, because of, you know, the social media outlets that people have, you can get opinions from people in kind of world-class positions readily available. Whereas um, a few years ago, that wasn't the case. So if you, if you're that keen and you're that interested to try and kind of push yourself to be as successful as you can within sport, there are outlets out there that, that people will, give you their time and their advice i think yeah that's beautiful that, that's what you're here for your uh your your their time and their advice at least for their their short time listening to the podcast and hopefully <laughs> I, I think it's definitely a lot of great information and knowledge appreciate your perspective and hopefully this spurs our listeners to go and seek out more of that knowledge and and do more of the research and put this into practice which is awesome yeah absolutely because we mentioned earlier about kind of not being given the information when when you guys were playing but I think there there's definitely scope for especially for students to go and find that knowledge at themselves at the minute um 
so yeah, that'll, that'll be my, my advice is that if you, if you don't know and you've asked n- numerous people, go and ask somebody else that might know um, and find out for yourself. We want to finish with a quick, quick little game that I've actually been thinking of since the beginning when you were talking about wearing so many hats, especially for the academy team, which is amazing. And, and obviously you were hu- doing a huge service, both from the physiotherapist and the role you were brought in, but also doing all this other stuff. And I'm curious if you're willing to take a step back and rate yourself with, with on some of those other uh, other ways you were helping the club out. That might be a fun, uh, a nice way to to just finish off our conversation. If you're if you're game with that, yeah, no problem. All right, so we have to start. You're you're in the dressing room. You're the kit man. You work on that piece of it. How how would you rate yourself? You could do a scale out of ten or five, or just speak to it more generally. How do you think you did at that? that piece of the role? Oh, not very well. Three, (laughs) three at best. (laughs) Three at best. Yeah. When you're, when you're in sessions, joining sessions with the lads, you're, you're finally getting some touches on the ball. How do you think you're held? You held your own out of 10. Even worse, probably (laughs) one to two. (laughs) Oh man. At least you're brutally honest. I'll give you a 10 out of 10 on, on honesty. (laughs) What what other uh, roles you'd mentioned some other, some other ways you were working with the youth academy team. You need to remind me of some of those other some of those other roles. Um, I've been the referee in training before. <laughs> Probably Do you ref better than you you train. No, I'm I'm gonna have to say I train better than I'm a referee. So one at a refereeing. Do you think you would have been improved with VAR? <laughs> no, I think it's a bit more confusing than anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I see. I'll, I'll throw it back to you. We appreciate. Appreciate the banter at the end here. <laughs> no problem. It was very good conversation. We appreciate you taking the time uh, during out of your day to talk with us. Uh, we, we we think and we hope that that our listeners uh, enjoy it as well and and get some good some good information from it and from you and your expertise. So no no problem. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the invite. Big thanks again to Tom and to all of you, our FOFs, our listeners, our followers, our engagers who make it possible. Follow us on social if you haven't already. Follow the YouTube if you haven't already. Stick around. we got a lot more fun content coming up and hope you are healthy and safe and well and getting excited for the holidays. See you next week. Deuces. See you next week. Yeah, we've been recording. Is this thing on? Check, check. Is this thing on? And that's a wrap. I don't think we're. I don't think it's working.